Caesar has authority. However, there are other areas over which Caesar does not have authority, that only God has authority. And the question then becomes, what are those areas? How do you define what is Caesar's versus what is God's? And further, who gets to define it? At the end of the day, God defines what Caesar is. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. My name is Aaron Champ, and I'm just so happy that you joined us for this episode. Here at Filter, we recognize that the world is a confusing place. It can often feel chaotic and hard to understand. And so what I aim to do is try to provide you with biblical clarity through which you can understand our world. We believe that the Christian worldview, or in other words, that the answers that the Bible provides to uh, the meaning of the world and the problems that we face and the solutions to those problems are the best answers that there are to equip us to live well in this world and to understand the times that we live in. And speaking of understanding the times that we live in, one of the uh, foremost conversations and things that we talk about and deal with is this question of uh, politics and this question of the state and what is the appropriate role of the state in society. Uh, Even as Christians, we ask what should be the relationship between the Christian and the government? Uh, What are the appropriate boundaries for the government or are there any boundaries? And if there are, who gets to define them? In this episode, we're going to be diving into all those questions and topics uh, with this guest that I got to talk to, uh, an incredible guy named Dr. Glenn Sunshine. Dr. Sunshine is an academic. He is an historian. He is the author of multiple books. Uh, He is also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And in this conversation, we got to talk about his latest book called Slaying Leviathan. We talked about uh, Jesus's words uh, that have direct implications for how we view government and just the profound nature of what he said. We talked about what Genesis 1 and 2 have to teach us about uh, society, about uh, liberties, and about uh, the role of government and all of those things. Uh, we also got to talk about resistance and uh, is it appropriate to resist um, in overreaching authoritarian government. So we dove into a lot of issues here, uh, and it was just really, really incredible and eye-opening for me, and I know that it's going to be for you too. Before we jump into that, just let me encourage you, if you have not already, to subscribe to this podcast. Uh, if you would subscribe to us on YouTube, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, if you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play, if you're listening to this so you can uh, take it with you on the go, Uh, That really helps us out, and so that way it'll help you out so that you can be informed and in the loop whenever we release new episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode and if this podcast helps you out, well, then would you do us a favor by liking this episode on YouTube uh, or by especially leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts uh, and wherever else you're listening? That really helps us to get this message out of clarity from Scripture in the confusing world that we live in to other people. And so without any further delay, let's jump into this great conversation that I got to have with Glenn Sunshine. Dr. Sunshine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Uh, as I already mentioned, you are uh, you're an academic. You are a senior fellow at the Colson Center uh, and also a host of uh, one of my favorite podcasts, which is the Theology Podcast. Uh, tell us about the podcast. What I love the name behind it. Just what was the inspiration behind 
uh, the Theology Pug cast. For if you're not, from, if any of our listeners aren't familiar, uh, it's actually Pug, as in the dog breed, and they actually have a picture of those uh, fun little dogs on the uh, cover. What, what was the inspiration for that? Well, it started with uh, Chris Wiley and I set up a thing that we called the Theology Pub, P-U-B, where mm-hmm. we met at a local restaurant about once a month and had people coming in and speaking. And then the restaurant closed down and we were having, frankly, problems finding new people to come in to talk. Uh, so we put our heads together. And by this point, we got plugged in with Tom Price as well. We put our heads together and decided to try a, a podcast. And we originally were meeting in a pub called the Corner Pug. And since we were meeting at the Corner Pug, we got the idea of calling it the Theology Pugcast. So um, that's, you know, it it was sort of a gimmick at first meeting in a pub, you know, because you'd have the waitress coming by and all that kind of thing. Mm. Um, And that's sort of become almost a trademark for the uh, for the show. Uh, Although it's going to be difficult for us to get together live now that Chris is on the other coast. But you know, mm-hmm. we'll manage, we'll, we'll, we'll zoom it or something. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I love the theology podcast. And so, uh, that's funny. I, I wasn't sure what the inspiration was behind the name, but we're here today to talk about, uh, your newest book, which is slaying Leviathan. Uh, I've read slaying Leviathan and I, I love it. It has been, uh, really an incredible and very helpful read for me. Uh, very enlightening, uh, learning the history and everything behind, um, the Christian tradition of belief in limited government, and then also something that we don't talk about as often in Christianity, but resistance theory. Uh, so the book is called Slaying Leviathan. What was your inspiration for writing this book and uh, the inspiration for the title, Slaying Leviathan? Well, it started off originally as a series of articles. I had done actually two different series over the years over at Breakpoint. And I'd collected a fair amount of information on limited government, on resistance, and so on. And then at the podcast, we did an episode on resistance theory fairly early on, and it proved to be incredibly popular. It was one of the uh, one of the episodes that got most downloaded. Mm. Uh, and so what that said to me is that this was a topic people were interested in and, and wanted to learn more about. So I set about doing some research to plug the gaps in my knowledge and put it together from there. Excellent. Uh, it just like like I said, it just seemed, you know, when I wrote, I wrote it at a time when I was seeing the politics kind of moving against uh, historic Christianity in mm. a lot of different ways. That's what inspired the original series of articles. And then, as it turns out, it was just released on Election Day. Oh, really? Yeah, last year. Yeah, so I, I remember that it was a few months ago, but I didn't realize that the exact date was Election Day. Election Day. How fitting. Uh, so for people who aren't familiar with Thomas Hobbes, the title slaying uh, yes. Leviathan. Okay, yes. Thank you. I forgot that part of the question. Mm-hmm. Leviathan was a book by Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes believed in an absolute government. He was an absolutist. He believed that the king should basically rule everything that happened in the kingdom. And his analysis, well, the title, came from the way he understood society. He believed that society was made up of all of the individuals who were effectively the body of the society, every every person in the, the country, all made up this giant organism with the king as its head. 
And he referred to that as Leviathan. It comes from a misunderstanding of the etymology of the word Leviathan, the, the idea that it's made up of a whole lot of different parts. But in any event, this the idea that the the kingdom is a single entity, a single creature, with the king as its head, who therefore controls everything. And so I use the metaphor of Leviathan for any type of unlimited government where, you know, where you have any kind of absolutist ideas at all. This goes back to the Roman Empire and actually even before. Um, and the point was that what Christianity does, as you look at the history of the church, is uh, coming from Jesus's statement, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What it does is it effectively chips away at, at Leviathan's power. It effectively destroys and slays him. So that's mm -hmm. because Christianity limits the power of the state, you know, in yes. Jesus' own words. So Yeah, and, and you know that you just said that the, state, the power of the state is limited by Jesus' own words is something that, uh, that even I had not recognized for a long time uh, while holding a belief in limited government, government not realizing that uh, Jesus himself had established the foundation for this where he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God's the things that are God's. Um, I think that I was always taught, and, and a lot of Christians think about this verse of, um, that all it is saying is that you're supposed to pay your taxes, and then that's it. They often don't realize um, that, that Jesus is saying a lot more, um, and speaking directly to the role of government uh, in, that, in that passage. Uh, do you want to explain a little bit fuller what that passage means? Well, the first thing to note is that there are certain things that do belong to Caesar. Mm -hmm. okay? Caesar has authority. However, there are other areas over which Caesar does not have authority, that only God has authority. And the question then becomes, what are those areas? How do you define what is Caesar's versus what is God's? And further, who gets to define it? At the end of the day, God defines what's Caesar's. Hmm. Okay. Um, it's not, Caesar doesn't get to define what's God. God gets to define what's Caesar's. So what can we determine from the word that tells us what the limits on governmental power are? And in, in a lot of ways, the book is an exploration of that subject. Yeah, and so as you said, Christianity was born into a Leviathan-like government, the Roman Empire. Right. And so whenever uh, the Gospels and whenever Christians would declare Jesus is Lord, uh, they weren't just saying something that was purely spiritual, uh, but it was in fact also a political statement. Yeah, absolutely, because the, the de facto creed in the Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is ultimately in charge of everything. And even if you look at, at issues of religion, for example, you certainly have, um, you know, temples with their own priests and things like that. But if there was ever a conflict inside a cult, inside a particular religious organization, it was the emperor's job to act as mediator. Mm -hmm. I mean, so he's even got authority in matters of religion. He's got authority over pretty much everything. When you say... Jesus is Lord in that context, the implication is, and Caesar is not. 
Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is the only one who has authority in every area of life. What authority Caesar has is what, what Jesus tells Pontius Pilate. Whatever authority you have is given to you from above. You know, mm-hmm. even Caesar's authority, what such as he has, is what God grants to him. So only God and only Jesus are the ones who can really claim to be Lord in that kind of absolute sense that the word would be used in, in the Roman Empire. Yeah, and this got Christians into trouble. Absolutely. That's what Christians were persecuted for, not because they believed in a different God. The Romans had plenty of people who believed in all kinds of different gods. What got them in trouble is that they rejected the absolute authority of the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this led them to start um, start developing a Christian political theory. Right. Where as they lived out this creed that Jesus is Lord, they started to ask, well, then, uh, what areas of life uh, does... Well, if Christ is Lord over all of life, uh, what are the proper uh, earthly authorities in the different areas of life? And this led to something called sphere sovereignty. Uh, can you explain sphere sovereignty? Right. Well, let, let's start with the early church. You know, one thing that most people don't understand is that Christianity existed for 300 years as a persecuted minority religion in the Roman Empire. What that means, that's longer than the United States has been in existence. What that means, then, is that the church, by definition, is separate from the state. The church, does, the state does not have authority over the church. If it did, it would have, it would have disappeared during the persecutions. Mm. So what this does is it says that there is something that is not under Caesar's authority. But where there is one something that is not under Caesar's authority it creates the possibility that there are other somethings that are not under Caesar's authority. And what's going to develop over time is this idea of sphere of sovereignty, where uh, this is as articulated by Abraham Kuyper. Uh, He's going to argue that there are areas that are, in fact, autonomous, that, that by God's structuring of the world and of human life, these are things that have their own integrity and their own autonomy and get to govern their own affairs. Mm-hmm. So things like family, things like education, things like labor and, and business. Um, Kuiper would add science. Um, all of these kinds of things are there and they should be allowed to operate on their own terms without the government telling them what to do or how to do it. Now, interestingly enough, I didn't go into this in the book, but if you actually look at Genesis, at the things that and the implications of what God does with Adam and Eve prior to the fall, many of these ideas show up there. Hmm. And as a result, we can argue, and this is one of the things that you, you see through the Christian tradition when it comes particularly, particularly to issues of rights, there are certain things that are pre-political, that is to say, that existed prior to the establishment of human government and human law. Therefore, they are not under the authority of those things because they predated them. Hmm. You, know, you can't say the government has, has authority over something that existed before the government itself existed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and if you'd like, I can parse out what those are from Genesis. But um, a lot of a lot of it really revolves around a careful reading and thinking through the implications of what God told Adam and Eve in the garden. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, we can definitely go into a few of those uh, because I think that if Christians, if we're going to live by a limited government view, well, then we should know where this view comes from in Scripture. So all the scripture that we can dive into, the better. Okay, well, let's look at Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1, um, we see God creates humanity. And I'll use the word humanity here rather than man for a reason, which will be obvious in a minute. He creates humanity in his image. Um, And it says literally, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what we have here, and well, we have two different things that come out here. One of them is, what does the image of God mean? In the ancient Near East, if you claim to be the image of a god, what it meant is that that god has designated you as his representative, his regent, his face in the world. And this gave you divine authority to rule. That's the usage in, in the ancient Near East. And we mm-hmm. see that in Genesis, because... The image of God is immediately linked to take dominion over the world. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the trajectory in Genesis, in Genesis 1, you see the world is formless and void. God then spends the first three days forming the world and the next three days filling the world. Then he tells Adam and Eve, he, the people made in his image, to have dominion over the world to reproduce and multiply and subdue the earth. So they're to fill it and form it. Mm-hmm. They're to continue the work that God began in creation. This is what's known as the cultural mandate. Mm-hmm. This involves both male and female because, well, part of it is reproduce, right? Yeah. And uh, But the other part is to uh, uh, subdue the earth, to take dominion over the world. When you get to Genesis 2, this is uh, spelled out a little more precisely. First of all, God, well, God creates the garden. And in the garden, what you see is, um, first of all, the garden is described as having trees that are a delight to the eyes. So it is a place of beauty and also that produce fruit that people can eat. So it is also a place of of resources. And in fact, the entire description of where the Garden of Eden is, it's just laden with resources. The whole thing talks about the mineral resources, the water resources, the trees with the fruit, all of those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. Adam is told to tend and protect the garden. Tending the garden then must mean at least two things. First of all, tending to the beauty of the garden, which is a mandate to produce art. And secondly, it's economic production. It's doing the things you need to produce your food. Um, And as we'll see later in history, this provides the basis for property rights. Adam literally had the right to the fruit of his labor. In this case, literally fruit. Then, so you're supposed to tend and protect the garden, tend it develop it appropriately, protect it, don't exploit it, don't destroy it. Then Adam tell, or God tells Adam to name the animals. 
naming the animals is much more than just coming up with random sounding words to describe them. Instead, in Hebrew, naming is all, as a thing's name is supposed to represent its nature. Thus, when people have significant encounters with God, frequently their names are changed because they become somebody new at that point. Mm -hmm. Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, Jacob, Israel, and so on. So naming the animals means you've got to understand their nature. That means you've got to study them. And that brings up areas of taxonomy and, frankly, science. So what you have here then, and then you get, of course, Eve as well. So what you have here then is the creation of family, pre-political, arts, sciences, and economy, labor and production and such. All of those things exist along with rights like liberty and life and such. All of those things exist before politics, before government is established, and therefore all of those things are independent of government. When you take a look at Kuiper's spheres, they align very closely with these pre-political elements of Genesis. Yeah, that's excellent. I was first introduced to uh, sphere sovereignty and, and some of these ideas through reading uh, Charles Colson, uh, mm-hmm. you being a Colson Center fellow. Um, Colson's book, uh, How Now Shall We Live? I think that was the title of it. I always get it confused with Schaefer's by the almost the same title. But yeah. I was first introduced to it there. And then uh, the idea of uh, property rights being founded in the creation narrative, I read through uh, Frederick Bastiat, mm-hmm. right. uh, who was a libertarian writer. And, uh, and so these are things that I just think you know, that a lot of Christians are not aware of that we assume that uh, many of the political ideas that we have today or even uh, American political ideals come from the Enlightenment philosophers mm-hmm. or, um, or that they're given to us by the government, uh, which, right. as you were saying, what, the, what makes so much of this profound, um, not just that it comes from Scripture, but is that uh, what Scripture is saying that uh, all these things are pre-political, uh, given to us by God, you know, something to render to God and not to Caesar. Right. So, and, yeah. and with that, we, we can add, I didn't get into the rights part of it, but uh, Locke's life, liberty, and property are all ideas that were developed by medieval theologians, largely reflecting on the book of Genesis. So. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And so I think one of the most influential theologians, not just in the political area, but across all of Christian history, would be Augustine. And you devoted an entire chapter to Augustine and his contributions to Christian political theory. Uh, tell us why Augustine was so influential, uh, once again, not just in areas of theology, but also in this area as well. Yeah, well, Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. And that is arguably, well, I would say unarguably, one of the most important books ever written because it determined the way the Latin world viewed itself for over a thousand years. There are very, very few books that can claim to have had that kind of impact. Wow. Yeah. And, and what Augustine said is that, and this is in response to pagan attacks on Christianity, he said that there are two, he uses the metaphor, there are two cities in this world, the city of God and the city of man. 
the city of God would correspond to what we as Protestants might refer to as the invisible church. They're the true believers uh, that are in the world that are seeking to live according to what God says, that love God, that love their neighbor. The city of man, by contrast, is where you see all empires rooted. It's um, it's a city that is, frankly, in rebellion against God. You can think of it as Babylon, if you will. It is, um, it is ruled by greed. It is ruled by selfishness, self-centeredness. It, ex- uh, it advances by force and power and violence. Um, and human government is part of the city of man. It's, it's just, you know, that's just where it's located. Government to Augustine is organized oppression. And what that means then, in the long run, just to jump ahead, if you accept this way of understanding the world, oh, and by the way, I should add government, excuse me, the city of God is not associated with the church by Augustine. Yep. Augustine Augustine notes in several places the differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pope Galatius I is going to say that the church is the city of God, and that's a distortion mm-hmm. of Augustine. Yeah, that's what you meant by saying that the city of God is the invisible church. Invisible church, right. The institutional church is a part of the city of man until Christ returns, right? Yeah, but he never really gets into that, but I think that that would be the implication. It may have a lot of connections to the city of God, but it is not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Particularly if it resorts to any kind of, of force or power, it is very definitely acting as part of the city of man, because that is not how the city of God advances. Um, In any event, though, the the impact of this is that it made the Western world, the the Latin-speaking world, very suspicious of government. Because, you see, original sin, which is another characteristically Augustinian concept, Original sin affects everyone, including governmental rulers. And as a result, no one can be trusted with absolute power. And as a result, you have to have systems of checks and balances in government. You must have limited government, because if you have unlimited government, it is going to become corrupt. Mm -hmm. It's going to be Leviathan. You can't do that. You can't have that. So Augustine puts a profoundly pessimistic spin on human government that remains with us, frankly, all the way through the American Revolution and the Constitution. Uh, Those are really profoundly Augustinian documents, uh, largely via the Puritans who got it from Calvin, who is a strong Augustinian. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and so what are some of the more some of the ways that we see Augustine's thought even still present today and impacting the way that we uh, view politics today? Well, again, essentially, anytime you uh, you start arguing for limitations on government, when you start arguing that you know we have to guard against corruption, that we have to guard against. Um, abuse of power, we have to guard ex- against the extension of government power in places it doesn't belong. You're effectively working in an Augustinian context. Mm. Because apart from Augustine and apart from the Christian tradition coming from him, there is no tradition of limited government. There is no tradition of restrictions on government. Everybody recognizes that government can be corrupt, 
but there is no systematic analysis of the how and why of that, nor is there much in the way of an effective response to it. Mm. What Augustine does is he gives us a path forward. Um, since no one can be trusted with power, you have to have a system of checks and balances. And those checks and balances in turn must be checked and balanced. Yeah. Because even the people who are holding the king accountable, for example, need to be held accountable themselves. This is going to lead us to the whole idea of separation of powers and things of that sort, as well as the independence, particularly of the church, rights of conscience, and a wide range of other, other kinds of things, emphasis on liberty, all of those pre-political things we talked about before. Yeah. Do you think that in our uh, in American culture today, and even among uh, Christians, do you think that we still have an Augustinian view towards the government, or is is that starting to change? Because uh, what you wrote about in Slaying Leviathan and what you just explained, you know, uh, honestly, to me, sounds like something that's really more of a minority view now. Oh, I think it's definitely a minority view, and that's happened sort of step by step. Uh, over the years, not the least of which, though, is because, you know, the American Constitution is a brilliant piece of work. But there is ultimately, largely because of human sin, there's a fundamental flaw in the system of checks and balances. Um, as it was originally designed, there was no provision for political parties. What that meant is the president was the one who got the highest number of electoral votes and the vice president was the one who got the second highest. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you think about President Biden and Vice President Trump or President Trump and Vice President Clinton or something like that, you can see where the problem is. Mm -hmm. So from there, they said, all right, you, we're going to elect a slate of candidates for president and vice president. This begins the this is really sort of the core change that is going to lead to a, an enshrining of political parties into uh, our constitutional system. Now, the founders absolutely were terrified of parties because to them, a party is a faction and factions are the things that destroy republics. What they were afraid of was, all right, let's look at how the system of checks and balances work. In principle, of, of the three, the, the judiciary is out. The judiciary is there to basically uh, be referee in this context. But the three key branches of government in, in this context, the executive, the House of Representatives, and the Senate, are supposed to be always in tension with each other so that any two of them can block an over can block the third from overstepping its power, mm -hmm. and the idea is that each of them is going to be loyal to their institution. Nobody in the House is going to want the House to lose power to the Senate or to the presidency. Okay, so you you stay loyal to the institution because you want to hold on to your own power. That's actually using original sin against itself in a very real sense. So the idea is that any two of them can double team the third to keep them in check. The problem is when you introduce parties into this, your loyalty is no longer to the institution, it's to the party. And as a result, you get alliances that develop across the branches of government. 
And that will allow the presidency or whomever most likely the presidency to overstep because the other mm -hmm. two will not do their job in, in checking him because their loyalty is to the party of the president. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, you see this, you see this playing out on both sides today. Oh, yeah. Uh, whichever, yeah, I, which, the president of whichever party is in control, uh, the legislatures of that same party seem more than happy for those four years to just delegate and give over all of their responsibilities and uh, all the policies mm -hmm. that they want to see enacted just kick the can down to the White House. Right. Uh, instead of and, doing their own work. And as a result, we have. Let's see, what was the number? I think it was something like 72,000 pages of. Um, in uh, in the Federal Register of regulations and things like that that we're supposed to follow. That's 72,000 pages after Trump cut 25,000 out of it. <laughs> It was 97,000 under Obama. Pretty sure the, the numbers are close. They may wow. not be exactly right, but I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure that, that that's pretty darn close to it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and that's exactly it. None of that or, or next to none of that was legislated. The legislature passes these framework things, passes them to the executive to actually write the rules. So effectively, mm -hmm. the legislature isn't legislating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think... Um, as entertaining as it would have been to have a uh, President Biden and Vice President Trump this last go around, <laughs> if we still followed that, you know, I think it just in, in an alternate world, that would have been really funny to watch play out. Uh, but uh, but I think it'd be great if we had a little bit of a recovery of an Augustinian view of the government, um, because uh, like I was saying, even, I think even in the church, we have uh, many well-intentioned Christians Many of my dear friends, even uh, who um, don't see a problem with allowing the government to continue to take control of every social institution of society, um, because there's this assumption that whenever the government runs X, Y, and Z, whether it be education, healthcare, you know, uh, the 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 economy, from running that top down, everything else, that it'll inevitably improved. Um, yeah, and because it fails to overlook. Yeah. Yeah, history tells us the, the opposite is true. Um, <laughs> and again, this, this goes back actually to the idea of sphere of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. um, each sphere is supposed to be autonomous, govern its own internal affairs. It is well equipped to do that, but it is ill equipped to run affairs in a different sphere. So the government does have its own legitimate sphere. There are things that the government can do and it can do better than any, anybody else. Mm -hmm. But the problem is when the government begins stepping into spheres that do not properly belong to it, it's going to do a bad job. Yeah. So the, the goal should be, you know, when a sphere begins to function badly, which happens, we talk about the terminology that's usually used is when a sphere collapses when it stops functioning the way it should, um, another sphere will usually step in to try to fill the vacuum. And most often that's the government. And the problem mm -hmm. is it, it is not equipped to do that. It is badly equipped to do that. What needs to be done instead is the sphere needs to be rebuilt. And the government may play something of a role in that, but the government's got to do it in such a way that it gets the heck out of Dodge as fast as possible. Yeah. 
And of course, as uh, President Reagan reminded us, the closest thing to eternal life in this world is a government program. And the problem is when the government steps into something, it never steps out. Yeah. And yeah, the I thought those... Net result Sorry, is yeah. things things go worse. Things, frankly, get worse and worse. Yeah. You know, similarly, people who think that our rights come from the government, which is another common misconception uh, across the board in America right now. Um, that's a disastrous idea, because if our rights come from the government, what the government giveth, the government can taketh away. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, and every time you. Uh, enlarge the power of the government. And so saying that our rights come from the government, that's, I mean, it's harder to think of a larger empowerment of, uh, you know, what, what we say is legitimate for the government to be able to do. Every time that we increase that governmental power, we're increasing that gun that can then be pointed at whatever people group, uh, which is um, the antithesis of living in a free society. Um. Well, you know, I hate to go from, straight from Augustine to a later period because there's a lot of other things to talk about. But let's go ahead and go into resistance theory, since that is uh, about what the second half of the book is on. Um, I was only recently introduced to resistance theory through reading uh, Francis Schaeffer's A Christian Manifesto, uh, mm-hmm. which this, this is actually the 40-year anniversary. Um, and that was the first time that I ever read about this idea, and it blew my mind. So would you just uh, introduce what is resistance theory and then talk about the Christian development of this idea. Okay. The the simplest way to understand this is that, well, let's go back in time. We're in a monarchy. The question is, when does a legitimate king turn into an illegitimate tyrant? You know, we're supposed to obey the powers that be, which means we obey the legitimate kings. But what happens when the king... Is there a point at which a king can turn into a tyrant who who can be and should be resisted? Um, you know, we're we're back in the book of Judges, for example. Yeah. Now, this begins the, this whole uh, that particular question begins to be addressed most pointedly by Martin Luther. And without going into the whole history of it, Luther comes up with. You know, as a result of negotiations with some lawyers um, having to do with the nature of the government of the Holy Roman Empire where Luther lived, um, he concluded that Paul's exhortation to obey the governing authorities in Romans 13 needs to be taken much more broadly than he had originally thought. His original idea was that means you have to either obey the emperor or engage in civil disobedience and accept the consequences. What the lawyers pointed out to him, though, was that, number one, the Holy Roman Emperor was elected, so he doesn't have his, his authority autonomously. It, it comes mm-hmm. from the electors, the nobles who elect him. Mm-hmm. Further, the nobles and the other magistrates in the government are all part of the governing authorities that we're to obey, which means that if the emperor breaks his word, breaks the law, Uh, violates rights, that kind of thing, then the lesser magistrates, the inferior magistrates, these lower level officers in the government have the right and in fact the responsibility to resist him, even if that means going to war if necessary. Now, obviously, it's not your first resort, but 
if you if need be, you, you can even go that far. So the idea then is that when the king does something really seriously illegitimate, then the lesser the, the, your private citizens don't have a right to fight back. But the lesser magistrates do have the authority to lead resistance against the king under these circumstances. So that's where it starts with Luther. It threads from there to the Huguenots in France, the French Protestants. It crosses the channel and becomes uh, important in England and Scotland, only they take a more radical view that argues that, uh, it, that the power of the king comes not just from the nobles, but from the consent of the people. You're getting this idea to some extent from Calvin. Um, and therefore the people, not just the lesser magistrates, but the people have the authority to resist the king when he starts doing something illegitimate. That turns ultimately into the English Civil War. It turns into the Glorious Revolution. It turns into the American Revolution. Mm. Yeah. And so if... If I were to play devil's advocate and, and respond saying, you know, well, Scripture tells us that we are to submit to our authorities, that we are to honor the king, pay our taxes, and, and so on, um, how can you reconcile resistance with these passages that we read in you know, Romans 13 and elsewhere? Uh, how would you respond to that, making a biblical case for resistance? We're only to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's the answer. When Caesar starts demanding things that do not belong to him, that rightly belong to God, we cannot render them to him. Mm. Yeah, so it goes right back to what Jesus said. That's right. In that, in that passage, yeah. That's why yeah. we started again, there. Yeah, once again, pointing out why just uh, there's so much more in that statement than I ever realized. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like I said before, I think that the common sense assumption that I had that I think is held by a lot of people is that Jesus was saying, pay your taxes and then make sure you keep going to church or like having your quiet time. Because yeah. I think that our modern society here in the West, especially as we've moved further and further away from a biblical view, um, has started to shrink what is God's and expand what is Caesar's. Or you could even say expand what is the individual's, uh, being an autonomous individual, not living underneath submission to the Lordship of Christ. And so rendering to God what is God's really just means doing your quiet times, maybe going to Sunday school or church. And then everything outside of that is up to the autonomous individual or Caesar. But Jesus was saying really the complete opposite, that there is a limit on Caesar. There's a limit on the, the individual. And then God is Lord over all and everything else. Yeah, and that, that's absolutely right. And a lot of this, this is... Um an example of the way, frankly, we read scripture badly. Hmm. Um, we have a tendency to look at scripture as if it's purely one dimensional. That, you know, Jesus was asked a specific question, and so Jesus was giving a spe specific answer to that question, which we can generalize as far as pay your taxes. We don't. What we don't understand is that he is articulating a principle here that extend that answers the question. He's giving a broad principle that provides an answer to the question he was being asked, but that has implications that extend far, far beyond the immediate circumstances. We don't think that way. 
we have a tendency mm-hmm. to think that, all right, this means that, and that's all it means. When, in mm-hmm. fact, a lot of scripture is frankly, um, well, I, I would use the word multivalent. It's got a lot of different values to it. It's got a lot of different directions it can go. It's got a lot of implications beyond what we normally think of. And this is one of the mm-hmm. reasons why history can be so helpful to us, because the people in the past definitely had their own blinders, but their blinders were different from our blinders. Mm-hmm. And so this can help enrich our understanding of Scripture, of the Christian faith, of how we should be living, because they have different blinders than we do. They can help us see past our own. Yeah. So as we look at uh, the insights from slaying Leviathan and history and start to look at where we are today, um, where in our society, in the book, if a few times you mentioned this phrase of Leviathan rising, mm-hmm. right? So Leviathan was largely defeated by early Christianity, um, and he rises and goes back down here and there. Um, and as you already said before, one of your inspirations for writing the book was seeing Leviathan rising. Uh, what are some of the specific places, areas, or examples that you can point to in our society today that you see Leviathan rising that Christians should be paying particular attention to? Well, the absolute horror show right now is the Equality Act. The implications of that basically remove religious rights. You know, it, it includes the thing you cannot use the, um, the uh, a Religious Freedom Restoration Act to defend against transgenderism or anything else that's supported in the Equality Act. So it attacks religious rights, rights of conscience. It also takes away parental authority over their children. Because if your child wants to go, if your, 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 your three-year-old decides that he is a she, you have to go along with it or risk having your child taken from you. Mm. That, is, that is the most egregious example of we can go to school systems and what's being mandated to be taught in public schools. It's far more indoctrination than education. You know, we can look at, um, well, let, let, me, let me give you kind of a, an, an odd scenario here. Let's look at the book of Revelation, the idea of the mark of the beast. A lot of people, uh, there have been a lot of ideas about what this means, but I'm going to suggest a different way of looking at it. The number 666, or in the alternate manuscript, 616, either way, um, the fact that those two are there, I think, really points to this. There are two different ways of, in in the Roman Empire, people would use numbers as codes for people's names that they wanted to disguise, okay? Hmm. And each letter had a value. If you are using Hebrew... The value for Nero Caesar comes to 666. If you're using Greek, it comes to 616. The manuscript variation there points to the fact that the early church clearly understood this as a reference to Nero. Okay. So, you're supposed to get the number on your forehead or your hand. Now, This connects in with other things in Revelation, but it also connects, I believe, to the Old Testament. 
where in Deuteronomy 6, where we're given the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It tells you to write these things down, bind them on your forehead and on your right hand. Where does the mark of the beast go? The forehead or the hand? Mm-hmm. What this is, what this is pointing to, is Ciro, Caesar declaring himself a god. It's Caesar saying, "I am the one who is going to replace your loyalty to God." When you look out at the world, you're going to look at it under me, not under God. When you mm-hmm. do your work with your hands, you're going to do it for me, not for God. It's Caesar claiming authority over our our thoughts and our actions, over our conscience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you refuse to go along with this, what does Caesar, what happens? You are not allowed to buy or sell. You are cut out of the marketplace. Now, if you're Jack Phillips or Baron L. Stutzman, you are living this. Hmm. Because what you have is actually, in both cases, unelected government officials dictating to them what they must do in violation of their own consciences if they want to stay in business and if they don't want to get bankrupted. Yeah. When the government does that, it becomes the Antichrist. Hmm. Wow. And I think that whenever we we come to talking about Leviathan and the government stepping into many spheres and dictating many things that it really has no business in, uh, I think we have an abundance of examples we could point to with the last year in the COVID lockdowns mm-hmm. and, and regulations and everything else. Um, when, when the, the battles going on in California with John MacArthur versus the state, and, and he's just one example. There were others, mm-hmm. you know. When the government tells you you can't sing in church, that's a problem. Yeah. 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 Well, in light of this, Leviathan rising in various different areas, uh, what can Christians do? What can Christians do? How can we resist? How can we slay Leviathan? But um, really what I'd like for you to, if, if you can, is to touch on what can we do locally? You know, um, so beyond just well, we can hope some you know, uh, national level, federal level senator can do. On a local level, what can, what can Christians do to slay Leviathan today if you gave the top three things? Um, the top three things are all the same. It's pray. Mm. Because ultimately our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual powers of wickedness in heavenly places. Ultimately, every, we have to... As American Christians, we tend to, in general, underestimate the spiritual dimensions of the world we're in. Mm -hmm. So the first step is prayer. Don't underestimate the fact that this is ultimately a spiritual battle. The second thing we've got to do is we we need to drop what has been called the political illusion. That is to say that politics is the solution for everything. We've got to move away from that. 
Um, a third thing we've got to do, I would argue, is we've got to be preparing for trouble. And the best way I can think of doing that is by forming what I would describe as intentional communities, communities of like-minded believers across denominational and church lines who will band together to give each other mutual support and to provide an alternative community to the world. This is one of the things that Rod Dreher was getting at in the Benedict Option. I really don't like the title because it suggests going away to a monastery, which isn't really what Rod was talking about. The fact is that values are formed in community. And if we mm -hmm. do not have a community of faithful Christians that we can raise our kids in, we will lose them in the next generation because their values will be formed by the world. So we need to be building up these intentional communities so that when Jack Phillips gets shut down and has to spend years in court, that he's got people he can fall back on to support him. And I mean literally, in this case, physically support him, provide him with the income he needs to pay his bills mm -hmm. and feed his family. Um, those are all starting points. Now, the other thing that I would point out historically, um, especially lately, is I would argue that, let's say the Equality Act passes or the government goes in some other direction, maybe not even that extreme. Historically, what has happened is the majority of the churches have just folded and gone along with the government. Whatever the government says, we'll do. Historically, that has always been the pattern. This is where the mainline churches have this. This is how we get the mainline churches in Protestantism. Evangelicalism is moving the same way. Many of the major leaders in evangelicalism are basically advocating following the government. You know, basically wherever the government leads, wherever the culture leads, they're going to follow. We're seeing a lot of this. And I would expect that if the pressure builds, People are going to say that in the name of loving your neighbor or whatever, we need to just sort of go along with this. Many of them will embrace it wholeheartedly. Others will go along to get along, not really agree, but they'll, they'll just do what they're told anyway. Both of those are recipes for irrelevance. Mm. Because if you are just like the rest of the culture, why do we need you? What we need to do, there's going to be a minority that is going to stand firm and is going to remain faithful, even at probably great cost. That's the group you want to be in. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, the thing is, it, it's going to cost. It's going to be painful and it's going to be uncomfortable. But on Facebook the other day, I saw somebody who put up a, uh, a meme that said, a billion years from now, will you care how many toys you had? A billion years from now, will you care how comfortable your life is now? That's the question we need. We need to be thinking in terms like that. If we have a truly eternal perspective on our life, if we recognize that this is a soul-forming world preparing us for eternity, then the 
hardships, the trials, the struggles, the tribulation, all of that kind of stuff, all the garbage that's going to come down on us if we try to stay faithful won't matter so much because our eyes mm. are not on this world, they're on the next. And so we need to maintain yeah. that perspective too. Yeah. Yeah, well, you mentioned Rod Dreher, and uh, I just finished reading his newest book. Um, Live Not By Lies. Yes, Live Not By Lies. And he talks about the same thing, forming these intentional communities. Uh, but in this book, he uh, all the principles that he writes about, he uh, tells through stories of uh, resistance groups in the various different nations of the old Soviet communist bloc. And uh, he talks about the family as being the, the center, the core, and then how it moves out from there. And for them, what was the underground churches for us still? Yeah. Above ground for now. And, uh, the church and then all these other intentional communities. And one of the things that struck me, all the stories were just, that book is worth reading for the stories. Absolutely. E- e- even just for everything else, they were, they were beautiful and moving. Um, but one of the common threads and themes was that despite the persecution and the suffering and, uh, even the smaller hardships and inconveniences that these people had to face, uh, they consistently reported how it was a joyful time for them. The community that they had together, the relationships in their family fabric, um, even in their suffering because of their faithfulness, God was blessing them with this overwhelming uh, joy, peace, courage to face what they were facing. Uh, it was it was it was so incredibly moving, and I just hope that that's something that we can develop here um, before we're in a uh, extreme place of desperation, like they were, while we still have, especially compared to them and other nations similar to that today that are under the totalitarian state, we still have a great amount of freedom compared to other possibilities. And so, the hope that we would start developing these kind of communities, like you're talking about, that are um, faithful and filled with joy, hope, and courage uh, right now, and for our children and grandchildren. Yeah, it's, yeah. you know, we we have a, a, a closing window to start developing these things. Um, you know, I don't want to get political here. I never had a lot of hope for, pres- but I'm going to, okay? I never had a lot of hope for President Trump. He actually did much better than I'd expected him to. But at best, Trump, even if he got a second term, he was only going to slow what, barring divine intervention, is an inevitable slide down. The best he could do was slow the slide. He could not reverse it. He could not stop it. And with the Democratic Party, I'm afraid the slide is just accelerating. I mean, we, we see this with things like the Equality Act and so on. We don't have a lot mm-hmm. of time. We need to start preparing for what's coming now. Because if we don't, we're going to get caught with our pants down. Mm. Well, let's pray that God's grace would shine upon us, fill us, uh, fill us up with boldness and courage, like we read about in Acts and uh, the early church and various other places in history, so that we don't get caught in that situation. Amen. Well, Dr. Sunshine, I, uh, I have so many more questions I'd like to ask you, but we are out of time. So uh, I just want to thank you once again for coming on the show today. Uh, It was just an absolute joy for me to get to talk to you. And I know that it's going to be a joy and helpful for our listeners. Um, The book that we talked about 
today once again is Slaying Leviathan. It's available uh, wherever you can find books right now. It is on Amazon. Uh, it's on uh, Canon Press's website as well. Uh, you can get it uh, in physical copy or on uh, on Kindle and ebook readers. And so I highly recommend it. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to uh, point our listeners to before we go? Um, yeah, I have a website where there are some resources that are available. Um, I have a 501c3 called Every Square Inch Ministries, uh, a term I got from Kuiper. So uh, the website is esquareinch, that's E-S-Q-U-A-R-E-I-N-C-H dot org. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure that I include that, the book, and everything else that we've talked about in the show notes so that people can go and get connected with all of that. Uh, I'll, I'll include your social media profiles so that people can follow you there. Uh, Dr. Sunshine, thank you so much for your time and joining us today on Filter. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can go to my website, aaronchamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the anchor.